0: Good day, radio listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio Broadcast. We're so glad that you decided to join us today. My name is Jonathan Darty, and I've got a special guest with us on the line today. We've got Jay Haig. And so, Jay, welcome to the program. Thanks,
1: Jonathan. Great to be with you.
0: Now, tell me again where you're located. Where are you actually calling in from?
1: Well, I'm actually in Punta Vita Beach, Florida, which is Cheek by Jowl to Jacksonville, Florida. So it's the greater Jacksonville area. and. Okay. Uh, we run a ministry called Living Without Lust here and uh, in Northeast Florida and, and part of the Southeast.
0: Yeah. Well, and and uh, we've got a lot of friends in the Jacksonville area and uh, I'm, I'm um, we live in San Antonio here. And so San Antonio is the seventh largest city in the United States. But folks from Jacksonville like to remind us that they're the largest land footprint city in the United States. So apparently you guys just that that whole region just kind of keeps annexing out, and it's a huge uh, geographical area. Yes. I guess.
1: You have to remember when you live in Jacksonville or move to Jacksonville if you get in your car you're probably going to drive thirty or thirty five minutes to go anywhere that's just the way it is,
0: yeah, yeah, well, it's a beautiful place. We actually love that whole of course Florida's got so many great great spots we love the we love Florida, but we're glad that you're on the program with us we're going to we're going to talk in a little bit um just a little bit more about what you do and especially how you help men get into recovery. but before we do that, um listeners, I want to let you know that. In uh, just a couple of weeks, we've got our um, Gateway to Freedom workshop that is going to be uh, coming up, and it's a couple of weeks from when this is actually going to air. Uh, in Texas, we've got a workshop that's coming up. It's a three-day weekend workshop that we do here called Gateway to Freedom, and it's coming up June 28th through the 30th, and uh, we've got limited number of spots available on that, and they fill up pretty quickly. So if you would like more information about that, if you're a man who just says, you know what, I'm stuck. I I need a catalyst. I don't want to be going around in the same circles that I've been going in with my sexual brokenness. Um, You can go to gatewaymen.com and learn about uh, the program and learn about how you can get involved. But Jay, I would love for us to just dive right in because I think there's a lot of, uh, we got a lot of men that listen, but we also have a lot of wives that listen to this program as well. And I would love to just kind of hear, first of all, you letting our listeners know just a little bit about yourself like how did you ultimately get into this space of ministry personally mm. and then let's talk about kind of how you help other men then begin this journey of recovery out of the bondage of
1: lustful living sure Jonathan um, my story is probably a fairly garden variety story of a sexually broken man I got started uh, young with pornography I had um, couple of instances of of physical abuse and then um, sexual abuse when I was eight and eleven so I was sexualized early and I uh, embraced a couple of lies one was um, and the first was as a result of my physical abuse and that is I'm all alone there's no one who can help me so I I became a kind of an isolated person uh, set apart from others Um, And the other uh, message of the lie I came to believe that was sex was my most important need. So if you put those two together, you get somebody who's kind of isolated, secretive, um, and who believes that they have to have um, um, some kind of sexual experience constantly in order to uh, feel that they're alive. And uh, that, for me, continued. uh, I always thought that pornography would pr- kind of protect me against um, having an extramarital affair, but it actually greased the wheels for it. And mm. to make a long story short, um, after marriage, um, I got involved. I was a pastor. I was an Episcopal priest for 17 years. So I was in the church. And um, that was where my brokenness uh, came in full bore, uh, until ultimately one day I just confessed it all to my wife, resigned. Uh, my church um, went into secular work and began to uh, work on uh, what I became to know as um, sexual addiction. I, I checked myself into a two-week program in Clearwater, Florida, began to uh, get involved with Patrick Carnes' literature and videos and came to understand that. And then I got into a 12-step program. But I, uh, as I went along in the twelve step program, I really didn't work the program fully. And that was the my problem is that I kinda went to meetings and kinda went along. And we know we're familiar with that syndrome in, in the sexual addiction recovery movement because sometimes, as you mentioned about this conference that you're gonna host, that um uh, that we get stuck and we get in a rut and we no don't really get free, but we kind of go to meetings and so on. And that was my story for many years until in uh the early 2000s when internet porn came out and um, that was my uh, crash. I had actually left meetings, I was not going to any meetings and then started looking at internet porn at work and I had a big final crash. And at that point I surrendered and um, I got into recovery and uh, I've had sexual sobriety ever since which will be about nine years uh, coming up in July. So that's kind of how I got into recovery myself. And I can certainly talk about then the next steps toward being in ministry.
0: Yeah, let me ask you a couple of questions, because one of the things that kind of jumps out at me, your story that we see so often in in our ministry is what you kind of dubbed, I didn't really work the program. I didn't really work what recovery requires. Can you Can you help our listeners kind of understand what that's like? I'm sure we're going to have plenty of listeners that go, that's sort of where I'm at. But but kind of how do you how do you break out of that? because I think there is a i know for me uh, the way I put it in my own story is before I got into what I call like real recovery is I had a lot of false starts, um, mm. meaning it was kind of like toe dipping, you know, hey, I really I don't want to be where I am, I don't really know how to get where I want to be, and I know recovery is necessary, so I'll kind of dip my toe into these environments that dub themselves recovery, but I'm not really fully invested yet. I'm not really, uh, you could put it all in, right? I'm not all in yet. So right. help our listeners understand kind of that that limbo space that you see, you saw yourself, but maybe you also see so many men when they come to try to test out recovery.
1: Right. So I think there's a couple of things here. One is the kind of the idea of half measures, the kind of the idea that it, I'm not really in the program. I kind of have my own goals that I've set rather than the goals of the program. And the program that I was in focused on lust, but I was focused on behaviors. And my behavior was I didn't want to have any more extramarital affairs mm-hmm. to meetings to avoid that. But that's a behavior. That doesn't get to the core issue of lust that was driving my addiction. So I had to get to that place of surrendering lust. So where, how did I get to that place? I got to that place by having an encounter with God, number one, where he basically said, I'm holding to you an op- open an opportunity here. And if you do not take it, it's likely that you will spend the rest of your life as a practicing sex addict. And I, the, the prospect of that was horrible to me. Mm-hmm. I had a whole series of events take place in my life. My father had died and I kind of, I was the top male in the totem pole in my family and i had made all these kind of decade long resolutions well i'll quit i'll quit when i'm 30 or when i'm 40 or 50 well, i was 59 when i actually surrendered and i had a i had an encounter with god and he said in or out in stay mm-hmm. in or go out and i ran out and i ran back to the program and i did every single thing the program asked me to do and the two things my sponsor says to me he says are you done uh do you really understand that you're powerless? And are you willing to go to any length to stay sober? And that means taking action. I had to be willing to take the actions in recovery in order to stay sober. There was no illusion. I, I, I went back to the X movie theaters where I used to go in and watch the, the movies at the movie theaters and the movies were filled with men with white hair. They were all sitting in front of me. I thought, what are all these white haired men doing there? The point of fact is they were all lonely and they were not fixed, even though they were in their 70s and sometimes in their 80s. So I realized there's no cure. What I had to do was to work the program and to uh, stay sober all the time.
0: Yeah, and you know it's interesting because um, I'll, I'll hear sometimes, and I've even said it in my in, in the past before of, you know, we trying to be careful of being prescriptive in our in our uh, helping of other people when it comes to recovery or whatever, and, and trying to be careful of just saying, just do this, you know, because we're quick a lot of times to say, listen, all methods don't apply in the same way to every person. However, when you understand the principles of recovery, then I think you can say, hey, you have to do this. Like confession, that's absolutely an essential part of recovery. When, right. when we use even maybe our Christian language, we say repentance. You know, is absolutely essential. Accountability; these things are essential. And there is a point, and and I know that we where we eventually want to get people is to understand the relational dynamic between them and God, and the relational dynamic between them and other people. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, you know, we have to go in this. Uh, progression of you got to crawl before you can walk and you got to walk before you can run. Right. And so many times it's those early stages that you just need to say, no, here, do this. Uh, Don't question it right now. You don't have the capacity or the understanding or the experience to know necessarily why this is absolutely what you need to do. But trust me, as somebody who's gone before you do this. And I think what I'm hearing from you is you didn't discover real recovery until you just did what the program was saying do. Right? Right.
1: And I had to undo my two lies. So my two lies was I'm all alone. There's no one to help me. I had to get into the fellowship. I had to get into belonging, transparent relationships, rigorous honesty, all of these things. And then I had to undo the lie of sex was my most important need to actually begin to fill my life with the positive, better things with, with giving, with service, with connection with God and with others, and even with things like rest and recreation and being outside and so on. All of that stuff is a package for me.
0: Mm-hmm. So tell me how then, so obviously then things started transforming in your life in terms of really understanding, okay, I'm all in now. And you obviously have experienced sobriety as a result of that. Tell me now how, how you have, how you help other men take that step out of limbo land, out of toe dipping, out of, you know, I'm going to false starts. And how do you now help men take that next step into real recovery where they really are all in?
1: Right. Well, one of the things we saw, and there was a kind of a, a group of us, which are guys that I brought together and we saw some things. And one of the things we saw was that we only see people when they crashed. So they got fired from work for looking at porn, the the wife has asked for divorce, Um, they've been arrested in a park or something like that. There's been some consequence. And we said, well, why don't we go upstream? So let's talk about and, and talk to the church. That's the leader part. So the way we help men is by essentially helping leaders to identify men for us. So the leaders, the Christian leaders are the ones who are actually, we are training to identify the men in their congregations or in their ministries who are struggling with this particular thing. And so we have various diagnostic tools that we help them to use. And then when we identify those those people, we say, essentially, you got four things that, that you really need when you get into recovery. The first thing is you're probably going to have to go away to some either treatment or workshop. And let me give a testimony for your workshop. There's been several guys in our area that have gone to your workshops, and they love them. Are wonderful. So for anybody who's listening, uh, you will have a life transforming um, experience when you go to one of Jonathan's workshops. But we believe that that's essential because it's kind of a spell that, that addiction takes over the brain. And mm-hmm. you get away and you have this concentrated experience for four or five days with other people where you're focusing on everything and your, your your phone is put away and you're you're really focusing on that it can be get you a running start so you're probably going to need that secondly you're probably going to need to have a therapist and we we identify christian therapists who believe in the addiction model and will actually treat it uh with you not try to dismiss it but treat it with you and you're probably going to have to go through a period of um, one-on-one stuff with that therapist to deal with your own specific issues. The third thing you're going to need is you're going to need to be in a 12-step or or a fellowship group that is deep honesty. We know that there are Christian groups who adapt the 12 steps, but some kind of um, accountability uh, recovery group that you're going to be a part of. And it's not just going to be uh, – a Ten sessions and you're done, but you're going to have to have that as an ongoing part of your life. Then the fourth thing you will need is a Christian mentor who is not your counselor, but is the one who will guide you through the transition that you're going through. Because very often, and we sometimes deal with pastors, but others too, there's a big upheaval in the person's life. And they are not, um, they've been um, abandoned, they've been isolated, Uh, there's lots of changes, and they're going to need somebody to walk with them to say, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be with you. Let's have lunch. Let's have coffee. And uh, let's keep in touch about how you're doing. If they do those four things, they have a really good chance of, of getting into recovery and well, and making it stick.
0: And I, I, I love what you're saying because, uh, but what's fascinating to me is like when you're saying all of this, I'm thinking so much of what you are are describing is, is what we could put under the over arching umbrella discipleship, right? When you think about what life on life, community growth, mentoring, counseling, we're going to need seasons where we kind of go into the wilderness for our intensives. And all of that, I look, it's like, you know, and my wife and I joke all the time because we look at each other and we have these quizzical looks like, you know, God seems to know what he's talking about, <laughs> you know, when it comes to how are we to do life together. Um, but I want to ask you the question because I, I I love it. I love the kind of the four key elements that you put there. What are some of the most common objections that you get from guys or the or the places at which they feel, you feel maybe the most pushback from them when you start kind of laying out for them, hey, these are the key things that you're going to need to have as part of this process of entering into a life transforming recovery?
1: Right. Well, there's a number of things. Uh, I'll just tick off a few. One is uh, the whole idea that they're in there because of their wife. In other words, uh, Mm. they're there because they want to save the marriage. And so we tell them, they say, at this point, I know you're hurting in your marriage, but don't focus on your marriage. Focus on yourself. You have to you have to work on yourself. Your wife is going to have to work on herself, and then eventually you can come together. But unless this piece of sobriety and recovery is in place, you will not be able to have the marriage that you want. The other question in regard to that is: we say you will not. Your marriage that you had is over. It is not going to be ever the same as it was. It's going to be brand new, and to do that, this is going to take a large amount of effort from you in your own recovery, because unless you bring your recovery to your marriage, you will not be able to build that new marriage. Second thing that people who come in, they think, oh, I'm gonna, I'll am going come in here for two or three months and I'll learn some things and I'll get, get fixed and then I'll go on about my, my life. And of course, what was that life? That life was a self-centered, isolated, addictive life. And so we're not just dealing with lust or sexual addiction here. We're dealing, as you said, with entire transformation from within. And that takes, is a lifelong journey. And I promise anybody who's listening to this, my faith, I've been to seminary and I've been a pastor for 16 years. My faith was completely revolutionized by this whole process of recovery. My understanding of the gospel and God's grace and love and his purposes in my life were completely turned upside down. I discovered that the, his allowing my addiction was part of his plan for my life to become into deeper relationship with him. And if people can begin to grasp that this is a journey where God is leading them to a better place, a place of promise and destiny, they can begin to get hold of what he's doing in all of this. So that's just a few... Yeah the roadblocks we run into, the quick fix, the, the marriage first issue is uh, always different.
0: You know, I love what you're saying because I, I, I experienced a similar thing in my own life, but I've also seen it happen in so many other men's lives where, um, you know, I, I I came to recovery with a type of understanding of God's grace that I didn't actually experience until I went through the recovery process. It's like, I had I had so compartmentalized what grace really was that it had no transformative effect on my life and in, until I got into real recovery what I like to call authentic community real recovery it was like then I experienced the grace of God in a transformative way and and I think there's a, I'd love to hear from you just maybe what is when can you you've been doing this a while. And so are you able to tell when you start to see the lights come on for a guy, like what are some of the tipping points that indicate to you, this guy is getting it, he's beginning to experience life, not just kind of think, have a knowledge about life and grace. Mm -hmm. What are some of those tipping points that you see when guys start to get it?
1: Well, one of the syndromes, and you're familiar with this, I know, Jonathan, is that a lot of us believe that we cannot be loved unless we are good. Mm. And so what we do is we try to put on this facade that we are good. We know what we're doing. We know it's wrong. And so we have this kind of deceptive lifestyle where we're presenting one view of ourselves to the, to the world publicly. And then we know what the other one is privately, and that's shameful and so on. And when guys start to come in and they start to get honest in groups and they start to talk about some of their acting out behaviors and some of their attitudes and actions and they can grasp that god loves them regardless of their actions so that love then and that grace becomes unconditional and it's deep and it's lasting and it never lets them go then they begin to say okay i I can now be honest i can now bring out who I really am. I go through a daily sobriety renewal every day with, and one of the things, questions in the daily sobriety renewal is, are you willing to be rigorously honest? And the first step sometimes is one-on-one with somebody else. But when it happens in the group and people can feel the acceptance and that everybody else, I mean, the typical thing is when in my own fellowship group, 12 step group, one guy kept saying, I'm just another bozo on the butt. Mm. And in, Educated guy though. I didn't want to be another bozo on the bus when I first came in I thought, you know, I'm different I'm special. You know, you know, the syndrome with addicts We think we're either especially better or we're especially worse, right? and when I realized that this was a connection with other guys and that we were essentially all the same regardless of our particulars of our acting out and I think that's one of the beautiful things of addiction recovery whether you have same-sex attraction whether you are opposite sex attraction, whatever your issue is, we are essentially all the same and have the same problem. And that's where the unity comes and that's where the way forward. So when guys can see that, then they begin to say, okay, I'm going to give myself to this because this is important. This is enduring.
0: Yeah. I think one of the, the key factors for me is when, when I see the, the heart softening to that alikeness among us as brothers then I then I think there's a, a corner that's being turned. Mm-hmm. It's when that guy stays in that position of kind of outsider, like I'm gonna I'm still sort of auditing the group. I'm still sort of like toe dipping, and he's not yet allowed himself to be embraced, like open himself up to be embraced and say, "No, I actually belong here. This is yeah. my tribe. These are my people." That that's when he's not gonna see traction until he actually kind of gets into that idea of and I I think that takes a humility and that's something that's so counter to an addict (laughs) you know we're we have this there's a false humility which actually presents as shame um, and that's not actually humility true humility is saying okay I know my brokenness I admit my brokenness and I will uh, I will put myself in the presence of other broken people who are also
1: admitting their brokenness Um,
0: so yeah go ahead
1: one of the most powerful things I think in the groups is there's a secret desire, and I forget who said this, but the secret desire to be known for who we really are instead of who we're not. Mm-hmm. And the church have had to play these kind of reputation management games where we're trying to, How are you? I'm fine, how are you? And you know, my children are doing well and I'm doing well, and I got a promotion and all these things that we say about ourselves. But when we can be known for who we really are and then love for who we are, really are, that is very powerful.
0: Yeah. I had a guy one time, a good friend of mine, Who you know, we've, we've known each other for a long time. And uh, he shocked me one time when I said, hey, how are you doing? He says, well, I think I'm due for a good cry. I thought, <laughs> what? What? I mean, I'd never heard another man say that to me. Yeah. I mean, that's like transparent. That's honest. That's open. And it gripped me and I thought, I didn't have a sense of looking down on him. In fact, I had like my respect for him just went through the roof. I was like, I want to be like this guy. You know, (laughs) there's something I think invitational when we're willing to be transparent, obviously in appropriate settings and and with the right people. But uh, we've got a few minutes left. I would love for you to share maybe just a little bit also about what you try to do with the leaders like how you help um, leaders as you were saying kind of assess or even just um, help men in this process and then we'd love for you to just share with our listeners kind of your resources and and your ministry
1: sure well what we do with leaders essentially is we we try to network and to build relationships with leaders because we want to become resource people so when when we sit down with a pastor or a therapist we're not asking them for money, we're not asking them for time. Essentially, what we're saying is we want to be a resource for you. So if it's a therapist, we're just saying we want to consider sending people to you. We want to know what you know. We want to, uh, you to share resources with us. We're all in this together. That's our attitudes. With a pastor, we we have uh, we have a little packet, uh, sexual edition resources that says if you don't know anything about this, scram ground zero. Here's about twenty pages of resources that that we have in our perspective how to identify somebody who's struggling one of the things we say to pastors is every six months stand up and normalize the struggles hey you know a lot of people are struggling with this pornography sexual issues if you're struggling don't struggle alone come and talk to me that mm-hmm. is the biggest thing we encourage pastors to say because if the pastor doesn't talk about it the people think it's not important many people in recovery as you know say i can't tell my pastor because he wouldn't understand well how do i think he doesn't understand just because he's never mentioned it. So we try to meet with them. And then we have um, uh, various training events um, where we gather, talk to Christian groups and provide uh, some training for them. I've written a book called The Rest of God, which is a commentary on Hebrews. It's also my story. And it's kind of an example of how you can apply the gospel to this, um, this struggle and how the gospel speaks to it we're struggling, I think, because we're kind of a, we're not a first century church. We're kind of a Victorian church. You know, mm-hmm. it's don't ask, don't tell when it comes to sexual issues. So how do we do this? We, we try to model for pastors that you can preach about this. You can teach about it. You don't have to ever mention a sex act or a body part. This is a spiritual issue. Um, I love Julie Slattery's term sexual discipleship. Mm-hmm. The church has seen sexuality and discipleship, Uh, In in separate places, in other words, let's get rid of sexuality, the danger of it, and then we can get into real discipleship instead of saying, how do we bring sexuality into that? Um, We have a men's conference um, once a year uh, in February where we have all comers. This coming year, we're going to have a special event with uh, pastors and therapists and leaders um, to come for a dinner. So a lot of it is networking. A lot of it is one-on-one stuff. Um, but that's essentially what we do for pastors, provide resources for them.
0: And where can, where can our listeners get more information about what you're doing and your resources?
1: Well, they can go to our website, um, livingwithoutlust.com. There's all kinds of, uh, books and videos. Uh, we, uh, did videos on the top 10 Google questions on, uh, lust, pornography, and sexual addiction online. And then we're, we're producing a leader series of short videos. What for for leaders on there, but uh, that's where they can go. They can sign up for the e-news, which you send out once a month, uh, and they can get all the news about conferences and events we host from the Mm website. Well,
0: Jay, this has been excellent. Thank you so much for just sharing your your story and your wisdom with us, and uh, just thanks for being on the program today.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. It's a real privilege. God bless.
0: Yeah. And listeners, we're always glad that you're with us. And I really encourage you to reach out uh, and, and connect with Jay's resources at his website, livingwithoutlust.com. And of course, you can always get more information about us and connect with us at puresexradio.com or hit us up on Twitter at Pure Sex Radio. And we look forward to seeing you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.